Ellie, have you got your T-shirt on from that madness gig you went to? Yeah, because this morning I literally sat up from bed, put on the nearest thing that was to me, went downstairs, sat at the desk and started work. <laughs> Fair enough. Was it a good gig? It was. To be fair, they sound even better live. That is absolute madness. <laughs> we don't deserve you, Timo. We really don't deserve you. <laughs> I mean, the season started out as a Ferrari 1-2 and now it's just a I want to die, which uh, sucks pretty bad. Hello and welcome to the Undercut podcast. We are back doing our thing and reviewing the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Yes, this weekend gone we have had the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. We've been over in Baku on the shores of the Caspian Sea and we had some racing. Um, I won't delve too much into it just yet as I shall introduce you to, as ever, the motley crew of Formula 1 fans, enthusiasts and journalists that make up the Undercut podcast and and guests because we have a guest back this week um but we'll get to him in due course as ever i'm joined by my very able co-hosts timo albus daly and ellie may taylor how are we all this evening perfectly dandy thank you and as ever we're joined by a guest and we've sort of he's not actually been in a pub garden today which is uh makes quite the change we've brought him back because uh in the nicest way Popular demand. I was going to say we couldn't find anyone else, but popular demand also works. It's I'll Jake. Say. Hello, guys. How you doing? It's great to be back on. Yeah, lovely to have you back. Always, always a good laugh. We've got Jacob on the podcast, and I'm sure he's got some thoughts about the Formula One racing we saw over the weekend. So we'll dive right on in, and uh, we'll go with our "What the hell has happened" section, and um, have a look at some of the things that were up before the weekend, which were Alfa Romeo unveiled their new livery for this weekend. And I won't lie, it looked terrible. Um, it looked like Francesco Bernoulli from Cars 2, and I did not much care for it. I feel like we missed an opportunity and should have asked fans to, to rate it for us amongst all the other liveries, but we can maybe do that in preparation for the next, next Grand Prix. We'll perhaps get fans back on for like a short 30 second bit where he just gives us a, a number out of 10. Why do it at Baku? Why not? It was to do with the release of a car back in Italy, I think. So there was some kind of commercial value to it, even if it did look questionable. Then just wait for Monza or... No, it would have been out for months by that point. It's too late. It's not how marketing works. No time like the present. Just wasn't very good looking, though. I mean... It did get people talking about Alfa Romeo for a bit until they had to retire, but, well, retire one of the cars. Again, not what you want when you're pushing a new car on the home market. But, yeah. Funny yeah, funny that. It's the only funny thing about that retirement because for a reason we'll get into it later. Yes. Um, but yeah, slightly naff livery, weird marketing reasons. If you're going to do your special livery, why not wait until you're in Italy if you're an Italian team? Um, another key point from the weekend, and slightly more important than simply what paint colour was on a car, uh, Bottas is now onto his third engine of the season, which 
I think when I wrote this down, sensible strategy with a streak of power-sensitive tracks from here until Hungary. Obviously, next up, Canada, then we've got Silverstone, and then we've got uh, Austria-Hungary, isn't it, to round out the first part. And the French, of course, French Grand Prix as well, which is so immediately forgettable. But the fact of the matter is they're all quite power-hungry circuits. And uh, Bottas is now onto his third engine, which is, it seems like he's getting through them at a bit of a rate. I feel like it's going to be good, but it's going to still bite him at some point in the season. I think, as we saw with other cars this weekend, they're going to be having penalties sooner, whereas he's just delaying the inevitable, but that could potentially lead to some races where he gets a few more points than you would normally do, kind of capitalising on any retirements further up the grid. So I'm going to say worth worth the risk, I suppose. I mean, if, if, you, if it's going to happen anyway, it might as well happen on your own terms as much as they can. I mean, cue this engine then blowing up in Canada and ruining everything I've just said, but until that happens. When it happens. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, later on in the season, a lot of Ferrari-powered teams are going to have to be taking a lot of uh, engine penalties which is not really what we want for the championship i mean it keeps things spicy and entertaining but it's really not good if you're a ferrari fan and it does make you wonder if there's something along the adage of for i make good road cars their f1 cars are terrible for i make good f1 cars their road cars are terrible and this has by and large been the pattern that one half of marinello is getting it damn right and one half's getting it terribly wrong and I think I've mentioned this previously on the podcast. The F1 road car or the Ferrari road cars at the moment are pretty good. Um, so it's it's not looking good for Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz in their hunt for a championship if if we're going to follow that pattern. Yeah, and if it's not reliable reliability screwing them over, it's strategy. So <laughs> kind of they've always thing. they've always been bad at that for the last decade or so. So at least they're consistent on that front. It's just they don't need the extra help in messing up. I mean, that's the thing. If Charles hadn't had his engine failure, I don't know if he could have finished that race on that strategy without stopping another time. And it again, a weirdly bold call from Ferrari, potentially ruining a race where track position is important, especially if you don't have the top end speed that those Red Bulls do and you're trying to defend from them. You need to be in a strong place on track and if you're going to have to pit out of that place again towards the end of the race when the track is field is more spread out and you're going to lose positions and have to work harder to catch them again, it just seems like Ferrari haven't got it nailed together at the moment. It's uh, verging on upsetting. Yeah. Well, what would be interesting for me, though, is potentially they could have come and pitted again. When did Kevin Maddox at about lap 37, 38? So they could have pitted then, which might have helped them out. But as you say, yeah, quite an interesting, interesting call again from Ferrari. But I suppose it's good that they're going bold, but... Sometimes they do need to work on their strategy a little bit. I think yeah. that even with fresher tyres, they wouldn't have got past Red Bull just because of their straight line speed. Yeah, that straight line speed was something quite incredible to contend with from the Red Bulls. Although the Alpines did have a higher top end speed. Fernando Alonso really able to coax out the KPHs in that sort of blue and pink car, which is uh, quite impressive. A lot of top end speed coming out of it. And uh, Kind of makes you wonder. We've got a lot more power circuits coming. If Alpine can keep the downforce sort of bled off that car, could have a few more exciting performances from the French outfit. And so, with the exception of this race for Alpine, where they actually had a good race, you could see Alpine being the main team to take it to McLaren for a fight for that fourth position. And if they get a good qualifying 
I think it'll be really hard to overtake Alpine just because of that straight line speed. We saw a lot of teams struggle quite for quite a while in Baku to actually overtake them. I say as well in the next three of the next four tracks all have long straights in them. I mean, Silverstone's got two, Canada's got the massive one, and France has got one down the back as well. So if you've got an LP in front of you, that you can probably get close, but it could end up being a case of close but no cigar again. Unfortunately, they don't struggle that much with the porpoising either, which that puts them at even more advantage than sort of the teams around them. I mean, when you look at things like Esteban Ocon defending from Lewis Hamilton for quite a long series of laps, as much as he had the straight line speed to fend him off, even through the sort of back section of Baku after turn two, he still had a stable enough car coming through the turns that just about, even on slightly dead tyres, had the guts to outrun Hamilton. We saw similar again with Pierre Gasly on very dead tyres, able to sort of outpace Hamilton for a good while. And it was a case of that Mercedes is just too unstable going through the corners that you struggle to get a good corner exit. And it took Lewis quite a while to get past a lot of cars in Baku. But I'm sure we'll get round to Mercedes. We'll skip to our Mercedes point now, where Timo has simply written on the script, Mercedes going bouncy, bouncy and trying to be a space hopper. That was I mean, me. I didn't write that. <laughs> well, that struck me as purely a Timo line, but there we go. Anybody chucking that one into the ring, it's... It's not looking, it's looking like a tricky car to drive. It's one of those, I mean, it's Lando kind of said it perfectly. It's, it, you have that extra bit of pace and performance, but at the cost of, you need a lot of massaging and acupuncture the next day to just physically get out of bed. Um, I mean, it's, it's working-ish for them at the moment, but that's mainly because there's no one else in the midfield who can kind of catch them just yet. McLaren would be the only one, and if they can keep up the momentum that they had this weekend maybe there's something there but until that happens they've got a bit of time a bit more time on their side to solve the bouncy bouncy as early may so eloquently put um and maybe close that gap a bit more to ferrari and red bull but it's it's kind of they're in their own little no man's land essentially but uh yeah they need to they need to sort that out because it's not great well how long can lewis hamilton go on with the with the porpoising. Oh, and, I feel like he's got the same mentality as the Black Knight from Monty Python. He, he, well, nothing will keep him down. <laughs> He'll keep continuing for sure. But it's um, yeah, it's very worrying for Mercedes actually. And who would have thought going into this new era, they always seem to nail every single rule change there has been over the last sort of ten years. And I, you know, I know Timo is forever the optimist of Mercedes, and I keep telling him I don't think Mercedes are going to win a race this year. He keeps telling me otherwise, but they've certainly got a bit of time season. to play. So it is a long season, so what, 14 or so races to go, but they're in a position whereby they're not going to catch Red Bull, they're not going to catch Ferrari, and I don't think McLaren are going to catch them. So as Timo said there, they're in a league of their own, so time's on their side, and I think maybe they should use the next few races. I know upgrades are coming for Silverson as well, but potentially, you know, iron out there, iron out the porpoising and use it as sort of like an experimental season and work what's not going to work for next year. So they, you know, 2023, they've got a much better hand going forward. That's what I suggest for them anyway. Whether they'll listen to me or not is another thing. Well, they probably should because there's a lot of tracks coming up in quick succession to each other that have long straights. So there's quite a few sort of times that they can 
try things out, see what works, see what doesn't. I mean, they've got the, the time, really. And it's not like in the second half of the season they're going to be coming across sort of not power-hungry or not big straight-line circuits. We've got to remember, you're going straight into Spa after the summer break. You can't be hammering along, sort of coming out of... Yeah, bouncing along. Monza could be a bit of an issue with Paul. Yeah, Monza as well. You trying to get that Mercedes down sort of the long straights at Monza and it's jiggling all over the shop. I'm trying to think where else we've got on the circuit. I mean, even things like the start-finish straight for Suzuka, you swing onto that already doing a fairly hell of a lick and then you're clattering down there into turn one, doing somewhere in the region of 200 miles an hour. It's going to be tricky finding a braking marker and getting a car settled to turn into a big sweeping right-hander. And um, so you've got the first half finish straight in Mexico and there's two big straights in Austin as well to contend with there. I mean, I'd like to think that even if it's not perfectly uh, sorted out by then, it would at least be better so we don't have a Baku situation. But it's kind of definitely that's the incentive. It's something you don't want to be doing. If you're still having those troubles in like October, November time, then you hope that you're getting so much more pace out of it that it's worth breaking your back for every weekend. Mm. How do you think they'll cope at Zandervoort? Zandervoort? Mind you're right, because the corners are banked and they'll just yeah, but ride how, it out. I wonder what it'll be like with the banking. Oh, that's actually a good question, because you carry a slightly higher corner speed. It's not as a faster circuit, but you run a higher downforce. I don't know. That's one for someone smarter than me, for certain. You stumped Jesse on his technical knowledge. Five points. Mind you, uh, it takes someone who's had a lot longer in Formula One than me to figure out how Mercedes are going to do at Zandvoort. Mm, and so thank you. And uh, someone who's certainly had a lot longer in Formula One than myself is uh, Fernando Alonso, who just is just a fun little fact, really, to tag onto the end of our what the hell has happened section. Uh, Alonso's career is now older than Oscar Piastri. Uh, Alonso has been racing in Formula 1 for longer than Oscar Piastri essentially the boy that is set to replace him has been alive which um, I don't know if that must suck being Oscar Piastri looking at a guy who's been doing the job as long as you've been alive is just sort of I think it's the problem of not only that but that he's still doing such a good job that you can't replace him yet this is the other half of the argument Alonso had a very good weekend of course in uh, Azerbaijan did he, he got points wasn't it yeah it was double points yeah for Alpine so not bad at all so it does rather justify having Alonso in the sport if he's out there putting in these performances um, that passion. you say three three point streak now across races after having four in a row without anything so he's kind of shushing the people that were doubting him a bit there and okay one of them was a ninth place but he got to start somewhere you, it points is points I mean it's a good performance. It's not a good enough performance to earn him a winner in our winners and spinners category, but it's certainly something that's commendable. Um, we'll shuffle neatly on to winners and spinners at that point. And um, Timo, I'll let you open up. Your winner from the weekend. You could say I've bounced into this section due to the driver in question. Um, George Russell, just because, yet again, and qualifies Lewis in, I quote Toto here, a shitbox of a car. Um, and again, is in the perfect position there to have a very lonely race for the most part, but again, is perfectly poised to take the points and the podium for Mercedes when they need it. And amusingly, but also in a really sad way, he's only 17 points shy of Charles Leclerc in the championship now, which 
weirdly is insane to say because if you told us this last year when we knew it was going there when we didn't know what Mercedes was going to be like this year you'd be questioning why that's so ridiculous but considering he's been on the podium three times and it's all third places it's it's kind of impressive and again there's that consistency is key thing and I was a bit worried for him at the start because everyone on Sky kept saying oh top five finish top five finish and was like why are you cursing him this is not necessary but he managed to deal with that, with, so it was all good in the end. So, yeah, winner for me. I mean, there's so many on this. I kind of agree with most of them on this one, um, but I just had to choose someone different. I would say, yeah, it's, um, you mentioned, Timo, it's quite surprising that, you know, last year, if you'd said he'd only be, you'd be 17, 17 points behind Leclerc, you would have been surprised. But, you know, it's, for me, it's surprising that he is 17 points behind this season, given how good the Ferrari is. And that just highlights to me sort of, you know, how, not how far Ferrari have fallen, because they're not really fallen, but they're not finishing races. And 17 points is only one more non-finish, you know, and a podium for, in the next race. We, we were talking off camera about what would happen if Red Bull, suddenly have some more reliability issues and if both if, if Perez DNF's in the next race for example and okay a bit of a long shot but if George wins he's only four points off Perez then which isn't then terribly far away from Max overall so it's again it's a long season and I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen but the maths isn't ridiculous and they have, to at least they have, contend for it and they have been the most reliable Teams. Only team to not have any DNFs so far yeah. this season, which I'm trying not Daddy to say. Too and they've been bulletproof for years, to be fair. I remember the last time they had a mechanical failure. Yeah, it's been a while for Mercedes to have something go wrong mechanically. They might have been crashed into or crashed into someone else, Bottas in Hungary. But Mercedes know how to construct a car that can at least finish races. It might be damned uncomfortable pushing it to that finish, but it will finish races, which isn't something that can be entirely said for Alpha Tauri, whose car sort of 98% finished the race if you're Yuki Tsunoda um, missing, uh, basically his rear wing split in half, like half of it DRS opened and the other half got stuck down, which was kind of fun which saw them break out the I, I do love how expensive and technology driven F1 is and yet the solution is just ah, gaffer tape but actually, no, if you're from the aeronautical world, you'll recognise that as speed tape. It's aluminium bonded gaffer tape. So it's slightly stronger. Not quite as good as flex tape, mind you, which uh, solves any problem. But there we go. Um, but speaking of Alpha Tauri, it does rather lead me on to my winner from this weekend, which was Pierre Gasly, who had a little bit of a redemption arc this weekend. He's not had a good season so far. He's been struggling here and there. And then he just sort of out of nowhere comes home. What was he fifth, sixth? I can't find out. He's fifth place. Fifth. Yeah. He likes Baku. Third last year, fifth this year. In and out for Terry both times. He likes Baku. And it's a circuit that sort of he goes well at. And equally, he found how to extract that pace, not necessarily in a straight line from the Alpha Tauri, but through the tight sort of technical, all basically 90 degree turns for the most of sort of sector one and two. And he knew where to find that pace in that car. And I mentioned it earlier on, we were talking about defending on sort of dead tyres. He was able to hold Lewis Hamilton off for quite a good while going through the tighter sector, purely because he'd set up his car and he had a car that he'd sort of knew how it was going to handle through the turn. So he knew where he could push and defend. And it was a really mature race from him. And it was deeply impressing and nice to see him making a bit of a comeback. Yeah, I think it... Uh... I mean, I think we probably say this every podcast that it shows why he deserves a better seat somewhere else. 
and not to be stuck in the sister team of Red Bull. I mean, the cries about him moving to McLaren are pretty constant, if quiet, at this point in time. It seems to be the general general consensus, at least in the public, to a certain point is... It just seems mean to send him to Aston Martin at the moment, really, doesn't it? That's the thing. So if he's going to move anywhere and move up, at least, it's got to be McLaren. And I think that's the only viable option, because... Either that or it's time for Timo's hair-brain prediction of the week. He goes to IndyCar. No. <laughs> I don't think we want that for him. No. I didn't Not say you'd like yet. it. I Not just yet. Quiet. He'll get... Tell he on the fence about it anyway. Two years of McLaren, then he gets swapped for Pato Award. And goes where? Well, he gets swapped for Pato Award. Pato Award oh, goes swap, to Yeah, but you know. As he goes to form IndyCar. That seems fairly sensible. Ellie May doesn't look happy about that either. Ellie May, not an IndyCar fan. <laughs> Ellie May, though, who would you say is your winner from this week? Mine's Max Verstappen because he won probably in a race where he perhaps shouldn't have. And I think this is the first championship since Daniel Ricciardo Red Bull era that he finally has a teammate that's kind of fighting him. And he hasn't had that in years. And I think, I mean, he showed it last year of how he can cope well under pressure outside of a with Lewis Hamilton, but he was outside of Red Bull. This time he's got someone who's fighting a championship in his own team and he's coping with the pressure really well. And he becomes one of only five drivers to have won, won 25 races before the age of 30. So... That's not bad going. And I'm far too smug about that for something you've not done. (laughs) And I'm going to test your F1 knowledge. Who are the other four? Oh, before the age of 30, is that? To win 25 races before the age of 30. Yeah, Vettel and Hamilton are going to be on the list. Yeah, that's two. Fernando Alonso. Yeah. Michael. Yeah. Yeah. It took longer than I would have liked that. It took a little more thinking than I really thought it should have done. Because I was sort of working my backwards. The further back you go through history, the older and older drivers are when they even start Formula One. So it's sort of like, ah, Graham Hill. No, he probably started winning when he was 47 or something. (laughs) I mean, Fernando and Hamilton only just get in it. They're both 29 at the time. Cutting it fine. fine. What it means is there's plenty of time for Yuki Tsunoda to absolutely dominate, really. I mean, a slight detour ever so slightly, but great little overtake by him in down to turn three. And he seemed very happy on the radio, but and we do love a happy Yuki on this podcast. So it's again, it's it's annoying that Alfatari have been having quite a bad season because look at both of them when they can put it together and the car is with them. Yes, yeah, there's there's something to be said for that Alfatari and when it has its day. I think as it has been for a few previous seasons, when the AlphaTauri has its day, it has its day and it's pretty good. It's just finding out when that day is going to be and making sure it's an F1 race weekend. A bit like Jacob's winner, really. When it's good, it's good. When it's bad, it's bad. It's bad. Yeah, It's bad. So yeah, I'll continue with my winner. I have gone... It was a toss-up for me this week. It was between Vettel and Ricardo, two of my favourite drivers. A slight mention to Ricardo quickly. It's good to see him back in the points after we slaked him somewhat on the last episode, the episode four last. But yeah, I've gone for Vettel. It's great to see Aston Martin back in the points and a solid points all, really. They're only on six points before, but they've uh, sort of caught the gap 
gap up to happen. Um, yeah, they've made some real improvements on the car. Maybe the uh, Red Bull copy has slightly worked, although somewhat commercial. In the moment of the race for me, how fantastic was that spin turn when he went down the uh, skate road at turn four? That was the moment of the race for me. Elegant, but aggressive, I would say. Fantastic. It was quite amusing because if you listen to the Channel 4 um, coverage, Mark Webber was saying how brilliant he was at uh, cornering and overtaking into corners at the exact moment he then went straight on. <laughs> He, he very nearly did what he'd done at qualifying because he sort of was halfway through committing to the turn. And in qualifying, we saw him just sort of bail out and basically boop the barrier. And then this time, he at least made it into the runoff area and then had that nice spin turn. And it seems to be certainly a thing that some of the older drivers do. They do the spin turn, but the younger drivers just sort of five-point turn it. We saw Norris struggling to do a five-point turn earlier on the week. Do, do you think a certain F, uh, older F2 driver used to be in it was looking at that and thinking, oh, that's how you get out of that kind of a rut? Yeah, I'm thinking perhaps Mahavira Gunatham was watching that one taking notes. Yeah, he, he, he put that on the DVR and has been watching it back with a pencil and pad. Mind you, Mahavira Gunathan is the perfect logical step towards the next part of this section, spinners. Drivers who... Drivers or indeed elements of a Formula One weekend which weren't quite as good as they should have been. We'll go back in order again. Timo, who disappointed? I'm countering Ellie May's point about Max Verstappen having a teammate who's fighting him because, yeah, Monaco, but then where'd that go? Oh, we don't mind who wins the championship, says Red Bull, and then tell Perez not to fight his teammate immediately in the next race. And I just think, again, it goes to the point of you should be able to trust both of them at this point that they've been able to um, back each other up a lot and, and help each other that they can do some clean hard racing and okay maybe you've had some flashbacks to Ricardo and Verstappen at Baku but at the same time it's been a while since then and to finish so far behind uh, Max in the end just a bit of just a bit ridiculous to be honest and after having such a strong showing up to that point in the weekend and leading the race for a bit it does and he didn't really fight him at all it, despite the orders when max overtook him you think he'd at least do something move ever so slightly but there's nothing and it's uh, does make you wonder again that okay paris you're allowed to win some races but we're not going to let you win a championship this year when we're going to screw you over a little bit more I think it's definitely interesting. It's, that. it's definitely interesting being Perez because he's not that far off Max overall. Max is on 150 mm. points at the moment. Perez 129. So if my math is correct, that's uh, what 21 points behind him. All it'll take is for Max to have a retirement, and Checo just needs to get that win, and he's he's leapfrogging in the championship, and he's not. He's there points-wise. He might not appear to be there on track, but he's always there points-wise, which I think is a more overarching threat. It's not a weekend-to-weekend physical threat. It's something slightly different. And I It's all well and good, but at the end of the day, if that still only translates to second place at the end of the year, no one remembers, generally speaking, who comes second in a championship. I had to do a whole bunch of articles for it when I was still doing, I was still doing stuff with Drive Tribe, and some of them were like, oh, really? You came second? That's I always amazing. remember Danny Rick getting third mm. in the championship. I feel like there's some hidden pain there for that one. <laughs> Do you want to say that with a slightly sadder tone of voice? Mind you, it's yeah, it's 
it's just an odd one looking at Perez so far this season. I want to think it's too early to call it this year as to how that's going to pan out. And hasn't stopped Red Bull. They're going to call it. I think that's the problem. Anyway, I've got a slightly different spinner. And for me, mine's not based too much on their performance this weekend. It's more based on just their terrible luck. Charles Leclerc. And I think this season could fast get away from him. And not for any real fault of his own. He put on an absolute blinder of performance and quality. But then his luck just seemed to be against him through the race. He obviously had that fairly catastrophic engine failure. It looked like a piston ring went because there was smoke pouring out of that thing all over the place. And it's the 2019 repeat we don't want. Yeah, it's it's going to see him tumble away and it's going to possibly dent his confidence and it's going to take another year to build that back up. And he doesn't have all the time in the world. There are Ferrari junior drivers coming up that are looking for seats and as good as he's proven himself to be previously and uh, we've seen plenty of moments of brilliance they need to be pretty consistent and obviously Ferrari might being Ferrari overlook their own ineptitude and just go purely based on driver results and that might not work in his favour at a certain point in the future when they go Mick Schumacher it's your time to sit in the red car again it's not promising and it's annoyingly through no fault of his own. So you can't blame him for it. It's just due to circumstances that seem to constantly be out of his own control. You very much want to create that meme of Gordon Ramsay with the bread on either side of whoever is in charge of Ferrari's strategy and just saying, what are you? Yeah, it's... You've also got to ask on until Charles gets fed up with Ferrari as well. Ooh, harebrained prediction then. He gets fed up with them this year and next and then goes to Mercedes. When does his contract run out? 24, but he'll buy himself out of it because he's fed up with them. It's not that far-fetched a prediction. Damn it. I mean, we've been talking about, obviously, Charles Leclerc and Ferrari, Ferrari being a Ferrari-powered team, but Ellie May, who's your spinner from this weekend? Of the day, I'm sorry, the Ferrari being a Ferrari-powered team. <laughs> um, quite simply, really, any Ferrari-powered team. Because only, what, out of six drivers to have a Ferrari powered car only two survived the whole race and neither of them got points because Bottas was 11th and Mick was 14th so they didn't particularly do that great really no just uh, and we were alluding to it earlier of all the ones that I mean Charles in particular was very frustrating but for me Joe was even worse on the luck front than Carlos for me because he was doing so well up to that point you could hear how just got wrenched he was when he was told he had to box he was, he was having a really stellar race up to that point which I was quite pleasantly surprised to see so a bit of a pisser I mean at one point Joe had even overtaken Bottas on track and mm, he was quite convincing and he's proven to be a bit of a dark horse and it's really it's exciting. Ferrari for engine for you. And yeah, it'd just be nice if Ferrari and Alfa Romeo were able to give him a much more consistent car because he seems to be a pretty consistent performer in it. And if he could really start getting some good drives in it, he, he could be setting himself up for a decent career in Formula One. And it's just annoying that he's currently being hampered by a laughably unreliable engine. It's quite frustrating that for most of these drivers and for some of the winners we even had earlier in previous races the main prompting oh we just need them to have a good race 
and it's more sense of luck of the draw that's doing anything with that rather than anything else because the problems they're all having consistently don't seem to be solved or if they are it's not working for long before something else comes along so it's not ideal I'd be bloody pissed off if I was Guan Yu to be frank to be, uh, to be frank you know he's recorded what one points finish this season his teammates on 40 points and it's certainly not the luck or the reliability that he needs to sort of prove himself in F1 you know there's always a chopping block there and that you're always going to be you know there's always talents up and coming you know looking over your shoulder so with Teo Porcher in the background he, you know he's really going to want to get some results down but through no fault of his own he's had I think three out of the last four races he's had DNF or engine troubles in so yeah it's not it's not really going well for him but he certainly proved to me that, that he can do it this year based on yesterday's form and i did slightly doubt him coming into this season but yeah so no, after his f2 performance last year we weren't too sure about that but uh it's, a, it's quite really, a surprise this year he's he, yeah he really has and what one point certainly doesn't reflect his ability for me this season well crucially as well he was driving within the points this wasn't like he was in a race where he was like 12th or 13th and maybe if he was lucky he might have got a point if others dnf'd he was in the points so he was go- he was gonna have a really good finish he's clicked with the chassis that he's got underneath him and he knows how to extract the most from it which is why it's so annoying when that ferrari power unit lets him down you see him tumble down and I'm just sort of looking back at the little spreadsheet we made up when we had Ben Wellen back on the podcast. And I know I probably mentioned it after Spain, because under our three bold predictions list, Ben put Ferrari have engine troubles, which of it's course applies to, it applies to Spain. Charles retires, Joe also retires. And then I've written in brackets afterwards, Baku, Charles, Rhett, Joe, Rhett, Mag, Rhett. I'm like... What did he know? Which also means that likely if Ben is going to be doubly predicted on all of his things, we're going to see team orders in favour of George Russell and the Vettel podium. I don't mind a Vettel podium. I don't mind that. I think everyone would like that. Yeah. I think I predicted that for next week. I mean, you also predicted a Vettel retirement, so make your mind. Not for this week, though. Not for this week, but for the season. Yeah, we also also predicted Haas seat swap mid-season and four different drivers at Haas. I also predicted Haas will announce they're leaving. So, I mean, that didn't look particularly... This, this, to be fair, was before we knew how decent they were in Bahrain. This was before we even knew who was in the second Haas seat. That is also true. (laughs) We made these predictions at the wrong point in time. But anyway... No, I think we did because, or at least at one point, you've written in Kevin Magnuson. Anyway, I think potentially we might have adjusted. You, edit, you edited that into my sentence using the Amazon Web Service. Yes, that was it. Yeah, that was what we did. We edited in Kevin. It Magnuson. sounded just like my natural voice. It was seamless. Yeah, it's the power of computers. Anyway, um, we have one spinner left, and Jacob, yours is quite a. I want to say theological one, but it's certainly a thinky one. Yeah, I don't want to jump the gun on this one. And if you've listened to me on other podcasts and down the pub, sometimes, you know, I've been described as a bit of a miserable bastard. I've gone with this one with a slight question mark because hopefully we'll hope that it's not going to ring true. But I put title fight question mark. 
you've got to think that um, there's a few things that sort of played out this weekend and gave a few answers to sort of the questions we've been having over the past weeks. And one of them being that Timo already answered that Perez, over the course of the season, I don't think he's going to have enough pace to be able to fight Max Verstappen. So you've got to think that potentially, and with a bit of Red Bull um, team, team orders at play as well, that Perez won't get a shot at the title, which only leaves Ferrari really. And obviously with their power unit struggles, you've got to think a couple more DNFs and I think it will be game over. But... On the positive side, we are at round eight. But Max Verstappen being the consistent performer he is, I don't can't remember the last time he wasn't on the podium. When was it? When every DNF, uh, the DNF, but the last time he wasn't on the podium with finishing a race was uh, in Budapest last year. So I'm going into that. I don't want to sound too miserable, but you know, the, the next few races will tell. I think the next three races, we're at half, then we'll be at halfway. So yeah. But one thing, one interesting point to to notice actually or, or to mention on the the engine side is into this season the engines are going to be freezed from was i think september they're going to be frozen and you can only make reliability updates now the interesting point for me on this this uh, bit of information is maybe they went into the season putting all their eggs into the basket so once that's frozen they can continue making reliability updates so by fault or by design, maybe it's a smart move by Ferrari, but that seems quite bold for Ferrari. Smart move in Ferrari don't often go into the same sentence, but certainly food for so We can always describe Ferrari as bold, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Yeah, bold and Ferrari, yeah, never necessarily good, but can sometimes surprise you. And uh, although there is a lot of history of bold Ferrari moves being either quite unsatisfactory or not surprising at all. But yeah, it's interesting, the engine freeze coming up, potentially Ferrari have just gone, we'll develop the engine to a really, really good point, but every now and then it blows up, and then all we have to do is we're allowed to fix the blowing up issue, whereas everyone else will go, oh, reliability, oh, it's a bit slow, but we can't change that now. So it's, I think they're solving the thing that they can solve while they've got the time to solve it, and it's a bit risky, but uh, it could be the one that pays off in the long run. And with that, speaking of things that might pay off in the long run, our predictions review. A bit of a clunky gear shift there. Don't think it quite works. Timo's wincing at me down the camera. Um, That's more what I predicted more than your clunkiness. Oh, more of what he predicted. Yeah, Timo scored no points this week. Uh, There's a surprise for everyone. There is a surprise for everyone. Top 10. What? what? No, Vettel top five. Oh. He, not close, but no cigar. Uh, he'd also predicted Perez pole again. One away there. Sainz win. Uh, so far away from that. Got to happen at some point. Uh, Leclerc second. Again, practically impossible. Hamilton third. Again, didn't think it was going to happen. And a Gasly fastest lap, which was... But I was so close on... The, I got a Mercedes, which is one bloody one. Yeah, wrong bloody Mercedes, isn't it? Uh, meanwhile, it was a decent points finish for both Ellie May and myself. I'll go with myself first. We'll work our way up. I scored two points. One for that Leclerc pole and one for Perez coming in second place. Ellie May, meanwhile, and I'm going to sneeze quick. <laughs> yeah. Sneeze before I finish this sentence off. Ellie May, four points across the board. She predicted pole correctly, first place correctly, second place correctly, and her bold prediction of Latifi and Schumacher finish because it's a street circuit and they're both terrible at them came true. Surprisingly, I dis- think she's been colluding with Jacob and Ben Willem. <laughs> Despite yeah. the ridiculous amount of penalties that Nicholas Latifi picked up, a tw- 10 second stop go and a five second penalty. Can we just say Latifi for a second? That 20, that, that stop go, not his fault. We just rarely oh, defend yeah, not him. His fault, the, the team. 
why do I mean, it always annoys me with things like that? Just like yeah, the driver's it, done nothing there, really. It's always when the team's done something. It's like, well, just find the team or make them do the pit stop with one less person. Don't bugger up the drive. I mean, okay, the TP wasn't going to do a lot else with his time on the track, but it's not the point. It's. I think that's one of the issues, though. You have to remember Formula One at the same time is both an individual sport and a team sport. So punish the team and not the driver. But how do you do that when the driver is part of the team? How do you, you do the rest the of the team and leave them alone because there was nothing you did wrong in that instance. You'd punish everyone else and you'd go out and flog the other guy. Anyway, predictions-wise, Ellie May did very well. She got four points, which does weirdly mess around with the overall standings. Uh, season standings. I now lead because we haven't actually had a guest make predictions for two weeks. That's all, all it took was for us to just not invite <laughs> guests onto prediction episodes for me to take the lead. With... Just remove the competition. <laughs> yes, I've now got seven points, which puts me in the lead. Um, Ellie, the guest is on six, though, so it, it's not over yet. Five of those could be in Saudi. Yeah, yeah, and of course, we. Yeah, most of those points did genuinely come from Jacob in Saudi, weirdly. Um, and then... In third place, Ellie May with five points, despite having so few appearances on the show, and Timo with four. So uh, I'm amazed I've got that many. Yeah, I mean, race average. I think you need some points for creativity. We, no. We're gonna have a cooler thing back at the end of the season. Potentially, when we all get together for the big season finale, we'll have a look at it. But uh, yeah, race average-wise, it's a. Uh, not looking good for Timo. You need, you need to pull your finger out, mate. Do, do better. I just want to dream. Speaking of uh, numbers and statistics, it's time for Constructors Countdown. Still on 10th place is Williams with a motley three points. Tied on points with 15 each, it's Aston Martin and Haas. Alpha Tauri are holding on to 7th place with 27 points. It's down 1 this week for Alfa Romeo after a pointless week leaves them on 41. And leapfrogging the Swiss-Italian outfit for 5th, it's Alpine with 47 points. McLaren are clinging on to 4th place at the moment, but with some fast circuits on the horizon, we could see Alpine close that gap. In 3rd place, Mercedes inch closer to Ferrari, the Silver Arrows closer to the Scuderia than the Italians are to Red Bull. Ferrari still in second, but for how much longer? And still leading the title on a whopping 279 points, it's Red Bull. So it's no change at the top in the Constructors Countdown, but things are looking a little bit different in our Fantasy League review, where frantically scrawled all over my notes, Timo has put, we don't need to do this part, we 100% don't need to do this part, nah. And uh, I've decided nonetheless to go ahead and do this part. I'm going to read out the little notes that I've compiled because it was a good weekend for me on the construct on our fantasy league team. Uh, I had uh, Perez and Verstappen in most of my teams uh, with either of them as mega drivers. So a lot of points for me uh, did rather tank it by having Ferrari as the constructor, though, which scored, I think, three points across the weekend. Uh, nonetheless, I still finished first and third this race week. So Shout out to me for being the highest scoring person this week. Thank you very much for the round of applause there, Ellie. Uh, I was also over 30 points clear of the next person, Alan G and their team one. So I guess well done to Alan as well. Do you know who that is? This turned out to be Prost. I think I've been wondering, like, is Alan Prost playing along <laughs> on our little fantasy league? I'll tag him on the next post we do for a fantasy thing. 
see if he looks. Please do. He might come forward. Um, anyway, it was a terrible weekend for Timo's on the curb team, scoring just uh, 43 points. Uh, so, yeah, not very good there, Timo. Bit like your uh, predictions. Well, it was, it was, yeah, no, I mean, I've, you'll be happy to know that I fired my entire team and rebuilt it from scratch. And the only person who has a Ferrari powered engine in the team is now the clerk. But I've not even given him the privilege of having double points in that because I don't trust Ferrari not to cock it up. Which means I'll probably bug at everyone else who I've now put into my team. But you know what? Sod it. I will try this for one round. And then after that, it will just turn into my adaptation of the Suicide Squad and just everyone will just be up from the shop repeatedly. Not good stuff. But yeah, not good stuff for Ferrari either. They scored three points in Fantasy F1, which... Um, I mean, the season started out as a Ferrari 1-2, and now it's just a I want to die, which uh, sucks pretty bad. Uh, but Mercedes could make a comeback, so there's still a little bit of excitement there. So anyway, our final conclusions. Anyone got anything else they'd like to chuck into the ring? Well done, Baku. Yeah, well done, Baku. Anything from you, Jacob? I quite like the anthem, as it goes. I do like the anthem before the race, and it was an upbeat one, so full marks for the national anthem. I didn't think it was that upbeat. I didn't think it was upbeat, but I liked it. It was quite sort of theatrical and cinematic. I thought it, it it had some pomp to it. I liked it. It's still not the Italian national anthem, which is arguably the best national anthem we're here on the Formula One sort of circus. But well, I saw I saw Daniel Ricciardo once invited along to a national anthem. So that must be uh, must be some sign that it's that it's good. He pops along to every national anthem. Timo, do you have any final points for us? He's he's mouthed no and shaken his head, but we didn't hear him. So potentially he's muted himself. He's now looking very confused at his computer. This is quite amusing. Again, audio podcast, uh, audio medium. This makes no sense to anyone listening at this point. So while Timo can't actually talk, which is a brilliant opportunity, um, might as well conclude. Timo does nothing outside this podcast. You can't find him on the internet. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and YouTube, as well as working for Classic Car Weekly, where I'm a staff writer. You can, of course, find Ellie May on the Undercut Podcast's Instagram, where she writes her key things ah. each weekend. Oh, he's made a noise. He can talk. Hello, Timo. Go back. He's back. Yes. Anyway, you can find Ellie May on the Undercut Podcast Instagram where she writes her key takeaways from each Grand Prix. So we'll be eagerly anticipating hers from the Azerbaijan Grand Prix later this week. And of course, Jacob can be found down to a local pub. I don't know where we actually keep finding Jacob from or where we found him in the first place. You probably find me in the cellar or beer garden or propped up in the toilet somewhere. I brought him with me, sobered him up and then let him go drinking again. That seems what we do. That's where I'm off to after this. We tempt him back with the promise of a snake bite each week. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back with both a Formula 2 review from Baku and a preview of the Canadian Grand Prix.